This is the Book Riot Podcast. It is a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 330. We're recording on Thursday, September 12th, 2019. I am here, now with Rebecca Shinsky, with Jen Northington. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. An auspicious day to have you as a guest, and we didn't even know it coming in. <laughs> as, a, as a former independent bookseller, as someone who's, let's be honest, a piece of your art is still in the independent bookstore somewhere. There's a piece oh, of sure. your heart in multiple bookstores all over the country, but... Mm-hmm. Um, it's still very much interested in the fate, uh, health, and well-being, and practices of independent bookstores, and a relatively big piece of news about independent as big as I'm trying to think what could be a bigger piece of news about independent bookstores themselves, not as reacting to something that someone else is doing. I couldn't right. really because it's so confederated that you know one one store doing something doesn't really matter, but something like this, we'll get to in a minute. Trying to compete with Amazon in a slightly different way, I guess. Maybe that's part of the discussion. But, Jen, thanks for being here this week. Happy to be here. Uh, a follow-up from an episode you weren't on about linear feet and how archives measured the amount of documents they have. Um, had um, a research librarian write in to say that we eventually, Rebecca and I, got to the right answer. And by we, I mean Rebecca, which is the linear feet they're referring to is how much self shelf space it takes up. Um, and an easy conversion... Let's see, I think I had it here, was um, this person went to do some research in, for their um, dissertation or a master's thesis or something on uh, Marilyn Robinson, which we should talk about at some other point. I hope they will, they will talk to us about that. But that, content, that um, collection was, I'm sorry, say that, let me say that again, 14 and a half linear feet is Marilyn Robinson's collection at Yale's Minicky Library. And that takes up about six bankers' boxes. So that's that's a unit I understand, having just moved what a banker's box looked like. <laughs> so Morrison's, which is more than 200, I think, feet? No, 400 linear feet would be a lot more. <laughs> would be a lot more than that. We're hundreds and hundreds of bankers' boxes for Morrison's um, uh, paper. So there's a... We knew there was a lot there, but exactly how much a lot was, we didn't know. So thank you so much to Amelia for writing in and, and squaring us out. I feel like I have suddenly have a bunch more questions about <laughs> archives and how these weird kinds of documents get indexed or not indexed. I guess it also mm-hmm. speaks to these situations where we didn't know there was this weird F. Scott Fitzgerald short story It's in this box somewhere. Well, it gives me a little insight to how this happened, that there's tens of thousands of pages that aren't organized in a way that's readily searchable or indexable there's a gold mine where most of it is like all mines. Most of it is just ore and there's not mm. a lot of gold. So it takes some work to get in there. So thanks for that follow-up. I got some other follow-up too. That's listener feedback. I think I like this format of the show. We do listener feedback. We're getting more and more listener feedback. I don't know why you guys are especially emailing us right now, but I'm so glad for it. And then we're going to do a sponsor and then some follow-up about you know new stuff that's related to other things. But let's do a sponsor now. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her data 
dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Do you care about streaming stuff, Jen? I know you you like movies and TV, but I'm not sure how much you are. Do you follow the TikTok of like what Hulu is doing versus Apple TV versus all this other crap? Yeah, especially in the development of new shows for specific platforms. Like obviously with Star Trek Discovery, I followed that Mm. pretty closely and I'm following the Wheel of Time adaptation over at Amazon. Amazon, Jeff, Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) As I said this on the SFFYA podcast too, they've figured out how to break me and it's a diversely cast adaptation of the Wheel of Time, which is exactly what they're doing. Curse them. Um, How dare they? Uh, But yeah, so I've I've been following it a little bit. I, I will confess, though, that I'm still currently only subscribed to two things, and that's okay. Hulu and Netflix. I'm only subscribed to Netflix right mm. now, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in these things, too. So Rebecca and I talked two episodes ago. Now with these bonus episodes, it's a little less clear to me about where we are. But we talked about the Dickinson show that Apple TV is making mm-hmm. part of his launch lineup. This is a real thing that is happening. Yes. Um, whatever else you think of it, but... We had a lot of questions about how this was going to work. Apple had its big fall event. Well, one of its big fall events, its iPhone event uh, this week. And things germane to this show. One is the pricing. It's going to be, oh, now I've lost five bucks a month. But if you buy a new app, um, iPhone, Apple TV, iPad, or I, th- I think it includes Macs too. I'm not sure about the Macs. I know about the other three. You'll get a year of Apple TV Plus for free. So if you want to go check out the Dickinson thing and you're going to go pick up a new phone or something else anyway... You can go check that out now. I probably buy enough. My cycle of Macs, iPhones, iPads, and Apple TVs probably is such that every year I'm buying at least one new of those things in my family, mm. I guess. I wonder if I'm going to be able to, going to be able to. I will, I'll get this as a bonus for paying an exorbitant amount of money for technology, <laughs> as I usually do. But I will have Apple TV Plus just in my life, just as things I would do normally, which is makes sense. I think it also makes clear that this is more of an Amazon Prime video kind of play for Apple than it is a... 
I guess HBO, which is this is their business, is to mm-hmm. make content and sell it to people for money. This it's an add-on, it's a bonus. I have to say, I've looked at the trailers that's available. It looks expensive as hell, all these shows. They all look really, really expensive in a way that some of the, I guess, run-of-the-mill Netflix originals really don't. But I also didn't know that they're doing this adaptation of Ghost Rider, um, not the Marvel comic with the flaming, <laughs> but um, the, the synopsis here. And it's based on a book series, I believe, when a ghost haunts a neighborhood bookstore and starts releasing fictional characters into the real world, four kids must team up to solve an exciting mystery surrounding the ghost's unfinished business. So there's a, the, the big splash page for this thing is four kids on a giant pile of books looking frightened, which for my kids is very, very tantalizing. I had my kids look at this. Is this interesting? Like, yeah, I'm in. Because they look like they're between, I don't know, eight and 12 years old, which is mm-hmm. where my kids can identify with them and be interested in what they're doing. Um, no, no trailer for this one yet, but it's going to come November 1st when all of this other stuff is launching. So there you go. I'm not sure if that's interesting. I think probably a lot of a lot more of us will be watching these because of packaging them with new Apple devices than we would if we just had to pony up five bucks on an ongoing basis. I don't think I was going to be ponying up for it. So that's one user that will at least try a couple of these things. Um, the Momoa one, I'm not sure looks beautifully written, but it looks beautiful. I'm not sure about the plot, but God, that trailer is amazing. Mm. Um and then you have the morning show, a couple of um, kids shows, an elephant docu- a nature documentary. I still don't get it, but at least I'll be getting it for, I won't be getting it for not any money. Uh, <laughs> there too. Any of these interesting to you? I, I, I didn't, I didn't watch oh, any of fine. them. I, no. I just, you that's know, a no. I'm, that's a I'm, no, that's a real no. I'm streaming out there's like between, you know, the CBS all access and, you know, Amazon and HBO, what they're doing and all of these different things. I'm just mm-hmm. like, I can't even, I can't even get excited to get excited because I'm just like, how many $5 a month? I mean, I know I'm not the only one who's feeling <sighs> yeah. nickel and dime yeah. to death by this. So, but I mean, yeah, I, if it is computers, I'm looking at a new computer in the next year, probably. Mm-hmm. So I will likely get something for free and then we'll see. If, then we'll if see. Wheel of Time, if Wheel of Time, that if the Amazon show was on Apple TV Plus and you had to oh, pay would do five it. bucks yeah, a month. Heartbeat, in a heartbeat. Okay. Yes. All right. That's, that's telling. It's really about the anchor show for me. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the anchor show for me that I know is coming at some point, it's in pre-production, so it's going to be a while, is the foundation um, adaptation that Apple has the rights to. So that will happen at some point. As in? Is that oh, Asimov. Oh, Asimov, okay. Yeah. If that if the trailer for that looked even halfway passable, that would be the anchor show Meridian that I would pass. Um, gotcha. Almost immediately there. So uh, related follow up, um, the Audible captioning saga. For now, I guess it's more of a detente. There hasn't been a legal <laughs> verdict or anything or an agreement struck. Audible has just said that it will pause full caption rolls out, rollout of its captioning of audiobooks. Um, it will limit it to public domain works. And apparently to a small beta group of students until a copyright lawsuit filed by seven major publishers and supported by the Association of American Publishers is resolved. Um, This seems like the prudent thing to do. They are working to roll out captions for public domain titles to over 150,000 U.S. high school students in support of our educational focus. Interesting. So one of the, I'm not even sure there's a tinfoil hat. I don't think it sinks or rises or whatever, whatever direction you have to go to get to tinfoil hat about Audible and Amazon are just doing this to to make their AI machine learning voice to text mm. recognition software better. Um, 
they can do that with 150,000 students doing public domain works. Like that's probably enough to do meaningful AI training. Thinking of it as a feature, a benefit that you get with your Audible purchase as a value add, I, Rebecca and I were skeptical of that. I remain skeptical of it. I also think my guess, and again, I'm not a lawyer. Don't, don't, I don't know, trade Amazon based on this or whatever. I don't think they're going to win this lawsuit saying that they have the right to caption this in real time. I, I wouldn't think so, but we are now in some sort of, um, yeah, so a moratorium of warfare about this particular one. The lawsuit will proceed, but for now, they're rolling it back. Public domain, which they, of course, have the right to do because that's how public domain work. Um, and it's probably going to take a while for this lawsuit to get through. Um, but there we go. Um, okay. Well, Jen, you and I, we had an agenda. We did. And we, we were things to talk about. Um, and yet, today we got... Is this a press release? Like, what? How did this roll out? I wasn't on Slack, the company Slack, when this started happening. Like, Where did this come from? What, what, yeah. what was, the, what was the, the information vector for this? So bookweb.org, which is a site that is uh, associated with the American Booksellers Association, put out a, I wouldn't call it an article, it's more like a press release, I guess, mm-hmm. but a piece, a post on the uh, upcoming launch of a thing called Bookshop, which is aiming to support local bookstores by selling books to you online. Like that's their, in a nutshell, yeah. that's what they're trying to do. And I'll drop the link to the bookweb.org piece into the show notes. And it was it was an interestingly worded piece because mm-hmm. it was, I mean, bookweb.org is something that indie booksellers use and it goes into, you know, there's an email newsletter that the ABA sends out and that's where it pulls from. So this is very highly targeted to independent booksellers and independent bookstores. And so it was mostly about the bookstore angle of this new mm-hmm. site. But we had a million questions <laughs> about it uh, that were that went beyond just what the ABA had to say about it on on BookWeb. And so uh, so I actually I reached out to the you know for more information email and they sent me a brochure. So hmm. so we have both that original BookWeb.org piece to look at and the brochure that they very kindly sent me. So the 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 thirty thousand foot version of the story is that bookshop.org is going to be essentially a front end for independent bookstores, essentially. Um, and you can go, you'll, it looks like there's going to be an app too, and you can go search for where the crawdad sing or whatever, and it will have the books there. You can find what you're looking for, and it'll help you either locate your local independent bookstore you can buy it through, or you can plug in, I guess, what your enduring bookstore is supposed no, to be? No, I don't think that's right, Jeff. I, Darn so it. I've been, I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried. I'm so sorry. I got a, I messed tried. it up already. Well, that's yeah. what IndieBound does, right? That's so what that's IndieBound what does. IndieBound.com So it's not a does. replacement for IndieBound? It's not going to just supersede IndieBound? Yes and no. So oh okay. yeah, it's it's a little bit complicated at this point. So, so what bookshop.org, right? This is the the new thing, bookshop, bookshop.org, is going to do is you're going to go on and you're going to see a page for where the crawdads sing and you're going to hit buy and you're going to buy it from bookshop.org. Now, how did you get there? You might have gotten there because your Mm. local bookstore linked to bookshop.org, which they could do, or you might have gotten there 
by just searching in, you know, their inventory, or you might have gotten there from a tweet or a, you know, news article or something like that. They're hoping that, you know, people will choose to link to bookshop.org rather than Amazon or Kobo right. or wherever you might otherwise link mm-hmm. to to push people to buy their books there. And then this is the part where the book sell, bookstores come in. Then any bookstore who signs up can get revenue share from bookshop.org sales. And okay. just for doing basically nothing. Mm-hmm. And and then they will get periodic installments of percentages from sales. And then on top of that, if you were a bookstore that doesn't want to that doesn't have an online inventory mm-hmm. or you want to use this instead, you will get a bigger you will get a percentage a bigger percentage off of any purchases that result from a link from like an affiliate link from you. Hmm. So so they're wow. so they're not redirecting you to your local although they are going to according to the brochure on like a, if you buy if you bought where the crowdads sing from bookshop.org on your receipt it would tell you where your local bookstore is and you know maybe hook you up with them that way but but they're not redirecting you they are selling you the book uh, and man, then I understand passing this along, even less now yeah they're passing along revenue share and profits to bookstores as well as <sighs> other as well as other affiliate linkers Okay. I guess I I thought it was somewhat more compelling. It's super, it's it's completely fascinating. I thought what was happening was you could go to bookshop.org and search for where the crawdads sing and then do like you used to do with Kobo, right? And say, okay, here's my bookstore. They get the commission or whatever. Or I was going to go to, um, oh, what's my, what was my, Core Street Bookstore, my old one Mm. in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn. Go to their website, click on the link there, and the e commerce experience would be, bookshop.org. And that, and that could that be. Your that bookstore could, could do that. Your bookstore could do that. Your bookstore could do that. So, okay, I guess maybe getting, I'm getting lost in the weeds of the, the mechanics of how the thing is supposed to work. The idea behind it, I guess, is that right now, for most people, buying a book online from an independent bookstore is kind of a pain in the tuchus. Is that right? I mean, that's one of the things going on here? Yeah, there's there's not a lot of so the ABA, how do I want to say this? The ABA has the indie commerce module that any ABA bookse- bookstore can add to their website. Mm-hmm. And and I transitioned multiple stores to the indie commerce uh, platform. So I'm pretty familiar with older versions of it. Now I, you know, have not worked for an indie bookstore for a little while, so they probably made some updates. But but the the basics of it is that yeah, you hook up your shop's inventory to the IndieBound site. And if my customer goes online, like you know, to Word Brooklyn or Print Bookstore in Maine, they can search for what's on hand and or order something to come in the mail to them. And there's a couple of different ways that a bookstore can fulfill it based on how they decide to go. Um, it's it's you know it's fine it's fine. Indiebound I think is much clunkier. Sadly, it was a great mm-hmm. idea, but in conception, it just there's so many clicks to get you from like I want to buy this book to getting to actually purchase the book. Uh, it's just too many. I I think personally, and I know of other people have have had that experience as well. So so this is you know their goal is to simplify that and still give money to independent bookstores right. at the same time. Yeah. Hmm. I think the story is too confusing. That that's my top line. Whether or mm. not there's a feature set here that that would be helpful, 
who is Bookshop and how it relates to my independent bookstore. Because one, one thing this press, it's not a press release, it's a PDF, whatever, information, media pack, I guess is the way to put it. Their top line is targeting online book buyers who are not currently indie customers by creating a national platform that allows socially conscious consumers an alternative that supports their values while offering one-click purchasing, an easy, intuitive interface, and two-day shipping. So that's what they think, that, that's what they're saying, this is what our value proposition is. Socially conscious consumers, an alternative that supports their values is super loaded. And I think we all mm. that do this for a living know what they mean. Mm-hmm. But should we make that explicit here real quick? Like this is don't buy, this is if you don't want to buy from Amazon. And to this point, buying from your independent bookstore has been an obstacle. This will be better. Just in a, in a nutshell. Is that right? Yeah. Or you don't have an indie like maybe you don't or have you one don't have an that that doesn't or their or your local indie doesn't have a website or you can't right. easily order from them for any given reasons. I mean, I know that, you know, it's not just that people are choosing not to shop from their indie bookstores local website. Like some of them don't have them or some of them don't right. have like their local is Barnes and Noble, for example. Mm-hmm. Um so and 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 the values part of this is that, you know, Amazon, as has been discussed in lots of different ways, kid has been, you know, aiming to put independent sellers of various trades, including independent bookstores, out of business um, in lots of ways, including loss leading and pricing. And, uh, and, and so, you know, the idea is that your, if your value is to support local economy, is to support, you know, fair tax collection or, you know, good business right. practices, there's all kinds of reasons why you might choose to support an independent bookstore instead. This will let you order books online in a much easier, simpler interface and still do that is what, is what mm-hmm. they're saying their value proposition is. Yes. So basically it's to push you over the goal line if you cared about this kind of stuff yesterday or December 31st, 2019, you care about being socially conscious. And yet there was too much friction for you to do it in, a, in an ongoing way. This is supposed to sort of make it easier enough than it was the day before to act on your social consciousness than it was the day before. Which, right? Like you can do it. It will be easier to do it, presumably. Yeah, which I think is interesting because convenience really is a killer when it comes to shopping. Like, I think we all know this, that if, Mm -hmm. if you can't make it easy enough for me, I'm not going to do it. And if I have to spend a million years hunting down where the book is or where any product is, where it's in stock, how can I get it? Do you have it? Can I easily get to you? Like all of these things change the way we shop. And, and that we know that like industries Mm -hmm. know that we know that as consumers, everybody knows this. So you know, they're saying like, okay, well, if convenience is an issue, let's make it convenient. Like, let's make it convenient. Yeah. But but so, that's not the only reason people don't mm-hmm. order books from their independent booksellers, right? That's not the only reason. Well, what are the other reasons and how are they addressed? I mean, so the convenience is one. Mm-hmm. Second, I think, is price, right? For, is that I mean, is that the killer app for uh, Amazon? Yeah. Is you get 40% discounts on, you know, all basically basically all new releases? Like, it's not mm-hmm. uniformly true, but... And how is this competing along that vector? And Do they I have this right? Yeah, they don't say anything about price in here uh, in terms of how much... Well, actually, I, that's a lie. It's 8%, kind of isn't it? Isn't that... Because this this, there's a pie chart that splits a sample revenue split on Bookshop. Uh, a bookstore using a Bookshop link. It says the cover price is 16... Let's say the cover price is $16, paperback, right? Right. In this model, the independent bookstore would get $4, 25%. 
the publisher gets 50%. So they're saying they're getting a 50% discount across the board or an aggregate mm-hmm. or however they're going to work this out. Ingram, which is, we've talked about on this show, now the monolith for, yeah. for book distribution, they get 12% of that for packing and processing. There's an 8% discount. So I'm guessing that comes out of the $16 that the, the buyer sees on the website. So it's going to, instead of being... $16, what's 8% of 16? Oh, I'm the worst at this. You know, a buck and a half off, essentially, a little less than a buck and a half off. And then bookshop.org takes 5% to keep itself going. So it's, it looks like in that situation, the rank and file person coming there, if they saw a $20, oh God, I'm so bad at this, Jen, a $25 hardback would be $23. There you essentially. go. So that's, that's the easy way to do it. Which, to my mind, doesn't put a dent in the Amazon discounting ecosystem. I mean, it's better than nothing, I guess. Yeah. But, or is it? Is it meaningfully better than nothing? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, it's clearly not enough for, for people who don't shop indies because of the pricing. For right. you know, re- There are real reasons why books cost as much as they do, and there are yes. also real, real reasons why people can't afford to pay those prices. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I don't, for somebody who's working on a budget, like 8%, I don't think is meaningful enough. Now, if you, if you are a person where budget is not really the issue, yeah. but like you want it quick and you want it to be easy and you get a discount, like, sure, that could be compelling or, or it's, mm-hmm. it's a something, I guess it is something, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's enough to tackle anybody who's who's specifically shopping from Amazon or or you know doing used books because of right. a, a discount, um, right? Maybe it's one of those things where having a discount at all is you go, you go from zero to one for one percent discount or five right. percent discount, but then to do sixteen percent versus eight percent, you're not competing at sixteen percent, so might as well be eight percent, I guess. Mm. Also, mm. the way this plays out is if it was the discount was higher, where is that percentage point coming from? Well, it's not coming from the publisher, right? Nope. It's not coming from sure Ingram, not. presumably. Yep. I guess they could give the independent bookstore less. I guess Bookshop could take a percentage point or two. There's not another 32% to go around, no. is what I'm saying here, to even to, to even get to parity. You will be able to buy audiobooks through Libro.fm, which seems like mm-hmm. it's had some success with people who are not dissimilar. Like uh, The Libro user is the bookshop.org target audience, except they're not because they say at the very top of this thing, is targeting online book buyers who are not currently indie customers, which I don't get. I would think there's more opportunity in just converting more indie customers by making it easy to buy books online than trying to go after people who aren't buying in from independent bookstores anyway. Do I have that wrong? I feel like I'm backwards on this one. Well, I, you know, I think, I wonder, I wonder if that is language oriented to assuage any fears that current independent bookstores who have many have robust online sales uh that could be you know they they go to great lengths to say this will not impact any bookstore who is happy with their online sales solutions um yeah 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 i mean i think uh politics and prose in uh dc does a really Mm. brisk online business too and and you Mm. know there are bookstores that do like make a ton of money off of pre-order campaigns for local authors and you know that's not that that appears to be not what bookshop is trying to do so i think that language to me says like hey books are you know booksellers like we're not we're not taking aim at your customers those are your customers if you want to send them to us like that's cool we'll take them mm-hmm. but like we're not that's not who we're trying to go after uh so you know again question mark like 
Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so Bookshop, Bookshop supports indies in two ways. I think both of these are fascinating. 10% of every sale on Bookshop goes to support participating independent bookstores. Okay. Uh, how? That's not on the pie chart, so I don't get that. Um, so th- may- maybe I can understand this, but let's just take it as read. The amount raised will be transparent and available to be viewed by booksellers at any time. So there's a big pot. So if you don't come from a particular bookseller and you just come to bookshop.org and you buy something... 10% of that sale is going to go to a pot, and that pot will be divided evenly between participating bookstores every six months. So your, the brand awareness, say, Politics and Prose, or The Raven in my hometown does to get people to bookshop, they don't actually have to go to the link for The Raven to benefit, just that they'll be put together kind of profit-sharing like you know sports teams do. Or that bookstore will get 25% commission on any sale generated by an independent bookstore using the affiliate link, essentially. That is in the pie chart. So I think what Bookshop is recognizing there is once they get any brand recognition at all, people are going to start pump, punching in bookshop.org. They're just going to mm-hmm. go there directly. And how do you then kick back to the people who helped you generate that some of the pool? And this suggests 10% is the right number. Also, another way that they're thinking about this is to give people a, you know, let's do a sponsor, and then come back because this kind yeah. of gets into where because yeah. it affects us. Like yeah. this is like this is our business to some degree too. So let's do a sponsor and we'll come back and talk about this. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, "quote Don't let the white man take the house." End quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Um, affiliate revenue. Mm-hmm. 
a big deal that people don't talk about, especially in our, in our junk, um, our line of work, where we're, we're linking to stuff online, books, other things. So here's what it says here. Every individual organization, magazines, digital publications, influencers, celebrity book clubs, critics, authors, and Instagrammers who use Bookshop will be using it because they acknowledge and celebrate the place that independent bookstores have in our communities and gathering places, businesses, and indispensable cultural centers. And you can be an affiliate, right? right. So if, I, if you or I use our Instagram, anyone can link to a book. You can earn 10% of the sale and support independent bookstores at the same time. So that's interesting, meaning that the wider Bookdernet can participate in the fight against the evil A by linking to Bookshop rather than Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Powell's or Book Depository or Half Price Book, you know, Mm -hmm. other places that have affiliate accounts. Author affiliates driving sales to Bookshop effectively double their royalties while supporting independent bookstores. They could do this by linking to Amazon anyway, but that's another situation. I think that's interesting because people want, we know this, people want to be able to link to a, I don't know what you would, sort of a, the Switzerland of, yeah. um, of, of, of e-commerce experiences. Mm-hmm. And right now there isn't one. I mean, you could link to IndieBound, but then you're paying the IndieBound penalty of UX, right? Like that it right. kind of sucks. Um, and also, is it Switzerland because it's full price? Is it the, the publisher? You got to go to every single one. You don't earn any affiliate length on it. I think this is interesting, and if this is going to work, I think this is going to be why. I actually don't think it's going to be independent bookstores. I think if whatever juice that would make Bookshop go, I think it would be from this spidery network of people that want to earn some affiliate revenue but also want to find a landing page they can feel good about. What do Mm -hmm. you think about that? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think that... You know, it's funny, too, because I'm thinking about, you know, you said Instagram, and mm-hmm. you can't put links in Instagram no, no. <laughs> posts. I mean, you can if you do this link in profile thing, but like Which that's... Which blows. It blows. It's, <laughs> it's, so, it's so much extra work. It's just like, oh, God, why? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we know, I'm going off the rails here a little bit, but we no, know that the most engagement across social media right now is on Instagram. So actually, so actually, Instagram is useless for this, which is sad because it's the place that could most yep. use it. But, right. uh, but so Twitter, Facebook, your website, whatever. Um, yeah, I think, like, I personally can imagine absolutely linking to this unless yeah. it was something very specific, like, oh, this bookstore is doing this thing. Here's the mm-hmm. link to buy the book, right? But but otherwise, I just don't link to anything currently. And right. so, I mean, like, people know. you know what? People know, yeah, where people the inter- know how the internet works. Yeah, yeah. they can yeah. find it. And, you know, but would I like to link to something? Like, the, But for me, you know, personally, that affiliate money is not going to make a difference to me no. one way or the other. I just want to send some somebody somewhere where they're going to have an easy time buying it. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say two things about this. One, they're not launching with ebooks, and it doesn't yep. say anything about when that might occur, which I they think is... They don't have is, a solution. It's they a don't have a solution, problem. which is... Yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Because, um, yeah. you know, so much of of... Of especially internet sales of books are mm-hmm. ebooks, right? I mean, I know it's like what forty, thirty percent of the market, but 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 on the internet, like how much internet, of that percentage huge, is huge, yeah, right? right? So so there's that, and then and then you know, as a company, like we can't, we couldn't do this. Not well, we well, could. We could. We could. Listen, let's talk about. I mean, people ask us from time yeah. to time. This is good as time as any to talk about the. Book right, the company we work for and make on a daily basis, 
does our linking to Amazon because it makes us money. There's no better way to say it. Um, it makes up a considerable percentage of our annual revenue. Um, I don't want to talk absolute dollars, but it's going to be approaching 20% of our company revenue, uh, Amazon affiliate and other affiliate too. I should not just, but Amazon is a lion share of that, that revenue. And the reasons it is the lion share is because we get the most out of it. And the reason we get the most out of it is a couple of reasons. One is the conversion rate is very high. The conversion mm-hmm. rate is how many people who actually click on a link to your, that you put on a post or whatever actually end up buying something. Well, Amazon converts at a wonderful high percentage rate for two reasons for that. One is most people have an Amazon account and they trust it. And two, Amazon has almost everything you can buy. Mm -hmm. And our affiliate commission doesn't just apply to the thing that they clicked on. If they click on a link to where the crawdad's sing and they buy it, okay, great, we get a percentage of that. But within a certain window of their activity, if they also buy dog food and an LG OLED TV and a shoe tree, we get a percentage of that as well because Amazon sees our link as advertising and they give us a kickback for that. On a dollar-per-dollar basis, we've tried other solutions, other big bookstores and retailers that you have heard of. We have worked with them, and Amazon nukes it from orbit. Like, it's just not even, it's just not even close. If we because find nobody else that is close, selling shoe trees or dog that's food. Right. Like you, or if, give you the same percentage and right. the affiliate window and everything else. They just aren't, it's just a completely different proposition. Yeah. Um, 10% back of the sale is pretty good, but it's yeah. only for that sale. And it doesn't say anything about cookies or any other uh, cookies, meaning does it track the, the user for the next 48 hours? If they buy other books, do you get that percent too? I'm not sure. It says right. custom link, 10%. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. So while morally or whatever, social consciously, I like this idea of having a place where we could link to and feel good about. Mm-hmm. That's fine. A, I don't feel that bad about linking in Amazon. I don't love it. If, I, there was, if there was a competitor I felt better about that could give us approaching what we get from Amazon, I certainly would consider it or we would consider it. But there's nothing that really comes close. Like any switch we'd make right now would require us to lay off three or four people. That's what I say when people talk to me, especially when I was on Twitter. Like, why do mm-hmm. you link to Amazon? I was like, because I like to hire our employees. I mean, to be, to be honest with you. So well, I think I don't know who... Would give a, anyone who's generating a meaningful affiliate revenue is doing it through Amazon mostly, especially if it's in books, and they're not going to replace it with this. I don't think if the money is meaningful to them, they're not going to replace it. If it's not meaningful to them, then they might. But that means it's not meaningful to bookshop or any bookstores or anybody else. So there's sort of a catch twenty two mm-hmm. in there. I feel like I don't know who through just virtue, um, it's hard enough to run a digital media business of any kind, is going to give up that much affiliate revenue to support independent bookstores. I, I just don't. And kudos to you if you can. And if, if you've got the extra, great, go for it. I'm just saying from our point of view, where dollars and cents is the difference between staying in business and or not at this level, I can't really figure out a way that it would make sense for us to do it this way. And if it doesn't make sense for us, who does it make sense for? That's where I'm trying to get to ultimately. Hmm. If it doesn't make sense for us, who can it make sense for? I guess it's people have a secondary concern, which is optics, Right. If you're an author that relies on independent bookstores, you can't be linking to Amazon. At least that's what they think. Maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. But I can see how that's an argument people make. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think a lot of things. But yes, of course. Uh, go for it. I mean, whatever you want, wherever you yeah, want to go yeah. after that. The, well, this, is, this really gets into a thing that I've been thinking about a lot over the course of this news mm-hmm. rolling out, which is, you know, if, if the goal of this is to be an Amazon killer, I don't think it 
can succeed. N- mm-hmm. Now, that might not be their goal. It doesn't say that that's their goal. It's they they want to be an option and an alternative, and which I think is a worthy endeavor. Yes. And I really want it to work. Like I want it. I want something I, like this to succeed. Oh, I don't yeah. know if it has to be built like this. I'd love to have something yes. else that's. That's not Amazon that does the Amazon things, frankly, right. but this that's, is, that's me. This is a much-needed thing. So I think mm-hmm. whether or not – I think the the question is not, for me, can it, you know, kill Amazon? Like, that's not the mm-hmm. question for me. The question is, you know, can they build a thing that people like to use, that people feel yeah. good about using, that people will use? Like, that – if they can do that, that's a win for everyone, no matter, you know – and can they do it sustainably? Can they stay in business while doing mm-hmm. it? Like, that's that's where the win is. But But I want – there to be, you know, an a, an actual viable alternative to Amazon so badly. And I just, the thing that's tough about this is that Bookshop, what they're doing is targeting consumers, right? They're changing, they're trying to target people who want this already or are open to wanting it and, and will use it if it's good. And, and that's a consumer level change. And, and, Obviously, consumer level changes can make shifts happen. Yes. But at this point in Amazon's, you know, career, as it were, as, mm-hmm. a, as an ongoing concern, as a business model, I don't believe that it's enough to, to – I don't think that consumer targeting alone can make that no. change happen. I just, and what do you mean by that? What do you mean by consumer targeting alone? <clears throat> I, I think I know what you mean, but say it out. Like make asking people to shop somewhere else. Like any marketing effort that you have, I just don't know how you can do it because you can't compete on price. And until mm-hmm. either A, they put themselves out of business, B, they get in trouble like right. for, you know, for, you know, being a, 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 a you know, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Jeff? Monopoly. Mon- thank Monopoly. you. I was like monolith. Which that's could happen not tomorrow. Yes, it could I mean, happen. That's always out. Right. That could happen at any point. Yes. You know, that's, but like, anyway, so that's yeah. a thing that could happen or like, you know, the zombie apocalypse happens and we're all screwed like but really i don't our third best choice is yes, for beating so amazon the family i mean that is a position that's what we call a position of strength yeah. <laughs> like, i just i just don't see that any yeah. marketing or you know offering that you could give will change enough buying habits and that sounds really depressing when i say it out mm-hmm. loud and i don't mean to be depressed i believe in independent bookstores i believe in them so much even though i don't work in them anymore and i want so badly like i said for there to be viable sustainable useful alternatives but i just i just don't see Given the current way that Amazon practices business, that consumer targeting will do enough to get us yeah, there. I just don't right. see it. And and so 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 I guess, you know, I think the conversation around this is gonna be very interesting. Because yeah, if your goal is to beat Amazon at their game, I I think that's the wrong goal here. I just don't yeah. think that's the goal. I think it has to be to build a good alternative for people who can use it, which is not the same yeah. thing. Well, um, I'm not sure how much I can say here, but I, I, talk, I, I had this conversation with someone related to Bookshop a, a while ago um, about this. I knew this was coming at some point. Um, and I won't say what they said to me, but I will say one thing I said to them is I'm not sure that the goals of helping independent bookstores and providing an alternative to Amazon are necessarily the same product, mm. right? I'm just not sure um, that trying to do both thing does helping local bookstores necessarily mean competing with Amazon I think yes and no I think independent bookstores themselves have proven that's not necessary 
to compete on Amazon's term with Amazon. You do other yeah, things. Yeah, that's how you lose, really. That's how you lose. And this feels a little bit like, you know, what's the old saying? Don't fight with frat boys because they're better at it and they like to do it. Um, <laughs> that's uh, Selling books online is what Amazon was, that was the crucible out of which they were born. And I'm just not sure that's the way to go. I don't know how to help local bookstores sell books online. I guess I'll say that up front. I don't have a better idea. I don't, we've talked about this, you and I, multiple mm-hmm. times. I don't think we do either. I think having websites for bookstores that are easy to use for the people who are going there is a, an end in itself. And if this was just a front end that if you were a member of the ABA, you could deploy with a one click and suddenly your web, your um, Greenlight Bookstore's website for buying books online was beautiful and easy to use and simple and blah, blah, blah. I think that would go a long way to helping bookstores. Like, what does this need to do to make a difference in the viability of any given independent bookstore somewhere in the country? Like, it is, how big of a deal does it have to be to, to achieve its goals, I guess? Yeah. If one of its goals is giving independent bookstores an increased revenue stream and sort of a 4% better chance of making payroll next month. I guess yeah. that's my another, like what's the minimum viable success story here? Cause I think I agree with you that providing an alternative to Amazon, well, you can provide an alternative to Amazon by making it virtually anything. It's an alternative, but does it do enough? Does it enact enough change of people's behavior or, you know, they're going to get more purchases per customer or whatever else it might be. Like what needs to happen for this to make a difference? whatever that means. I have no clear sense of that. I, I really don't, both for this product and the larger book buying world, because it feels like, to some degree, it always feels like we're living in the book buying version of the zombie apocalypse. Like Amazon is the meteor that hit the, the universe for, in the world of book buying. And this is what's the world that's left over to some degree. And unmeteoring the meteor just doesn't really work that well. And I don't have a great answer. I, I desperately want there to be... I, Listen, I'll put my cards on the table. If there was bookshop.org that we could say, you know what, we're going to get 78% of the revenue we're going to get. I'll, I'll lose 22% of the revenue from Amazon to switch to something else I would. But I can't lose 90. I can't do it, Jen. Yeah. You know that. We've had yep. this conversation. We have. Too. Um, we have. But, but I just don't see, I would love that to be there, but I don't know what it is. And I think probably, my guess is you've got to compete along some other vector. Like you said, don't compete along selling books and price. Goodreads, I guess, is a good example of like, it's a site that's about books, but it's not about buying books. Mm-hmm. Like it has to be about a better browsing experience, some other kind of experience that you can't get other places. And not to mention that this, this is feature, this doesn't have Amazon feature parity. You can't buy eBooks. You can't buy self-published books, eBooks here. Can't do it. Um, so I, I'm just not sure. I think this is a noble effort and they've really thought it through and they've really done their homework about messaging and what they want to do. And in a lot of ways it looks great. I just am afraid at the middle of it, there's, there's nothing at the center to, to move the ball along. That's my concern. Anything else jump out to you about this? I know we, we talked about it for a million years. already. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be looking on January, you know, whatever, yeah. 2020 to see what happens. And and I guess it's worth saying you can sign up for emails uh, from yeah. them about the launch um, to see what happens. I'm curious, you know, I think, yeah, I wish I could think of what the number was. Like, how many sales do you have to have yeah. to to meaningfully support the bookstores that are participating um, I, I, and you know, how many affiliates do you need to have and how do you manage those affiliates? There's so many nitty gritty, mm-hmm. super in the weeds questions that I have. So I'm, I'm really curious. I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that it goes well because I think that if we can, 
you know, if somebody out there can show that, like, it, you can have a satisfying online purchase experience that yeah. also benefits your local economy, that would be nice. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. I would like right. that. That would make me happy. Uh, whether or not that's enough to be sustainable and, and to do yeah. real, to make real change, I, I don't know. But I will say, you know, we didn't say this earlier. They have some very smart people on yes, their advisory board, including uh, Mitchell Kaplan of Books and Books, which is a longstanding, very successful independent bookstore in Florida. Among other places, they have branches in various other locations. Hannah Oliver Depp, a former Book Riot contributor, Book who, writer, yeah. yeah, who owns Loyalty Bookstore, which is a beautiful store, by the way. I've been; mm. it's gorgeous, and she's so smart and doing such interesting things. Uh, so I and and Kelly Estep, who I don't know personally, um, who's from Carmichael. So so they have a seven member board. Three of them are booksellers of of repute, and uh, mm-hmm. and so that you know I think there's good smart people working on this, and and I hope that they can figure out something good to do. I will say this. Um, as much as we've been, I think we're both interested and anxious about this product. Yeah. G- given what the constraints they're working with and what they're trying to do, it looks great. I mean, with the same set of goals, I'm not sure I would come up with anything even close to this good. Mm. Like in terms of how they've broken out and they're explaining it and what their their strategy is, I think it all makes a ton of sense. I'm just, my, my thing is, is the foundation upon which all those decisions are built is there something there and i just don't know i hope i'm i would love to be wrong about this i'd love to be wrong and bookshop is a thriving um you know choice for people and it really helps independent books for stay in business and people feel good and you know i I hope it works i know listeners out there both shop at independent bookstores and work have worked in them some of you have run them some of you are on all sorts of this issue so i'm sure you have all sorts of interesting feelings you could send and thoughts to send us a podcast at bookriot.com this is the principle. If I could ask one question of little birdies out there that work in independent bookstores, it would be this. If your online revenue doubled tomorrow, would it matter for your store? That's the question I'd like to answer. Yes or no is easy. If that, you could say more about that or not. I'm just, cause that's a very easy metric. Does bookshop help? If bookshop helps you double your online revenue tomorrow, which seems like that would be a good, that would be a good outcome, right? Mm. We doubled revenue, but would it matter? Cause I've heard Maybe, Jen, you know, it's been a while since you're in a bookstore that for many bookstores, online revenue is a vanishingly small part of all of revenue. And so doubling of almost zero is still kind of almost zero. Right. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe there are stores, I, I like, I'm sure there's independent bookstores are different. And like you said, some of them more successful than others. But would it matter if it doubled? Because more than doubling was going to be tough. I would imagine it would be tough, but that's just my guess. All right, enough of that. Let's get to regular stories after this sponsor. Okay. Where do you want to go, Jeff? I don't know. Where do you want to go? You're the guest. You pick. We've got actually four pretty juicy stories here, actually, frankly. Where do you want to go next? We've got more than four juicy stories, but I'm going to scroll down a little bit because I want to talk about something that makes me really happy. And, okay, I know where this is going to be. Well, it it could be two things, and oh, okay. I'm I'm going to go, I'm going to go first to Waffle House. Yes, I'm, I love. I just can't handle how much I love this story. Waffle House has a poet laureate. Yes. Right? Like, okay, I I mean, I don't know what your experience is, Jeff, with Waffle House. Do you have Waffle House experience? I mean, I've been there. I don't have like um, nostalgic Stranger Things riding around on bikes sort of nostalgia <laughs> for Waffle House. Do you? Yeah, when I was okay. when I first became speaking of independent bookselling, when I was first mm-hmm. a bookseller in Arizona, 
one of the places that we would go, we would periodically have these bananas overnight shifts to do inventory. And inevitably, mm-hmm. we would end up at Waffle House after inventory. And because of my acquired gluten allergy in the last few years, I can no longer go to Waffle House. And I don't think there is one near me anymore either. I mean, mm-hmm. they really are sort of an out west thing. But yeah. so, so, so the story is that uh, a the current and former CEOs of Waffle House were at a Georgia Tech event because they're graduates, and they were talking to the current poetry professor about how they're really not seeing rural counties send any applicants right. to Georgia Tech, uh, and and even though they guarantee admission for any valedictorian or salutatorian in the state, and they were talking about ways they could change this. And so Karen Hurd, who's the professor of poetry, just said, you know, I want to go out to these people and talk to them and and let them know that this exists and, you know, do outreach. And Waffle House, we're like, yeah, we'll fund that. Not only will mm. we fund that, but we're going to crown you our poet laureate. Incredible stuff. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's really good. It's sometimes you feel like you're living in a dystopia, but yes. the Waffle chain having poet laureates is the utopia version of the dystopia utopia coin right like i could never have made it up in a thousand years and it just is delightful it's really great so if you um if you want to find out more link in the show notes um i don't know anything about this person also one of the more delightful websites i've run across in a while the rural blog a digest of events trends issues and ideas and journals from and about rural america as someone from kansas um I don't hear as much about rural as I, as I could. And so I immediately added this to my RSS reader because I'm also the kind of person that is RSS reader still. I don't know what that says about me. Probably not something great and up-to-date in, uh, in my world. Jeff, I do too. You, yes. I think, you know what? That doesn't surprise me. You're like, old, you're like new and old tech at the same time. <laughs> you're always barely in fashion. Just, no, no, I'm Thank you. I'm going to take that no, as you, high praise. <laughs> no, you, no you, found, you find the right tools and you continue using them whether or not they fall out of favor or not. That's, that's one thing I know about you. Um, where do I want to go? Yeah, where do you want to talk about? And this is also a follow-up that I think is interesting. So Epic Reads, which is, oh, I forgot now. Is it HarperCollins' young yeah, adult infant? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's wait. Their, is their it young the, adult. Oh, boy. It is Harper. It's right. Harper. It's HarperCollins. Okay, Harper. I thought it was Harper. Um, we talked a while ago uh, about that Spotify does have some audiobooks, but then we actually looked at them and we're like, boy, this is some slim pickings. And in an effort to bolster them, um, Spotify has made a deal with Epic Reads that Epic Reads has a curated list of 10 audiobooks, including some, you know, Maggie Stiefvater, like people you've heard of, like you'll have heard of this book if you listen to these shows, that you can listen to as part of your Spotify experience. I think this is really fascinating. As I said on that show with Rebecca, I don't know why an hour's worth of audiobook should be different than an hour's worth of podcast or listening to music on Spotify. Could this be a way to monetize backlist audiobooks from publishers? Get it, put the first in a series on there. Maybe, maybe put all the first in a series so you get people to read other things. Why not try this? Epic Reads has shown a very interesting history of trying stuff out. They have a really vibrant online presence across multiple social media platforms. They've done YouTube and other kinds of things. So I'm not surprised to see... Epic Reads trying this, but I'll put a link in the show notes and just bring your attention to it because, you know, Rebecca and I once talked about like what subscriptions would you abandon last? And I think at this point I'd abandon Spotify after having already given up Netflix at this point for me. It's that mm. crucial to my daily experience. Um, and so uh, I will definitely be looking at this. My kids need to be a little bit older for YA, but one, if they put some middle grade on here and some YA, I'm going to listen to this on the car on the way to Trader Joe's and back with my kids. So 
go check that out there. Hmm. Jen, let me ask you about Margaret Atwood. Real okay. Quick. Just, we're, I know you're an Atwood fan, have been, to, you bought her ice cream one time. I In spirit of full disclaimer. Yes. Um, oh, it's, Lord. it's being developed, the Handmaid's, excuse me, the Testaments is already in development at Hulu. Not a surprise, sort of a, a, a dog bites man situation. Mm-hmm. The book came out this week. I'm looking at it right now. Um, I can't say that I would be the hugest um, advocate for its cover design, but that's, you know, small pota- small grapes, sour grapes, small potatoes. I don't know. Some, <laughs> some, some variant of an agricultural product um, came and was it a big deal online last week? In your estimation. Oh, huge. Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere was talking about. Well, it's interesting, actually, because you can't really separate out the breaking of the embargo from the buzz nope. about the book. That's like, exactly what I said to Rebecca. It's a too bad that that happened at one of the Right, because it would have been interesting to see what the buzz was like just for the book mm-hmm. on its own merits. But instead, we got the embargo story, which, you know, sure, fine. Um, right. It's, you know, no such thing as bad publicity, right? I, especially in this case. So, uh, yeah, and it's not a surprise that the Testaments has already been optioned by Hulu and MGM. No. You know, they're, they're doing a, a lot of work with the, with the original material. They've won awards. You know, people are watching. So, so I mean, there's, yeah, like you said, it's a, you know, dog bites man. Like, it, there's no surprises here. There's no, no surprises. Yeah. Are you reading the Testaments? Will you be reading the testimony? I don't know yet. Mm, I am waiting to hear from some people who know me and know my taste and Mm. and to hear what they think about it. I, uh, I, I mean, I think that her contributions to literature are significant. I think Mm -hmm. also that there's a lot of other things I'm reading these days and... I I just don't know. I mean, this is a world I confess I'm not watching the show because right. it was too violent too and much, dark for much. me. It was too much. It was too much. And uh and 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 honestly, this is not my favorite Margaret Atwood book, mm-hmm. quite frankly. I mean, Handmaid's Tale is is iconic for her, but I there are others that I prefer. So so it's not the same as if you know she had added a book to the Oryx and Craig series, for example. Right. That yeah. would have been a way bigger deal for me personally. So so this is sort of on the on the edges of my you know TBR. Will I pick it up? Not certainly not right now. I I mean this can this can wait. You know I don't feel any Did you read urgency. Any reviews? Do you read any of the reviews? I know I've only the ones that have popped up on uh, like the personal ones that have popped up on the book riot editorial slack, quite frankly. Uh, those are the only ones I've been looking at because, again, I have I have so much reading to do and, and yeah, this yeah, can yeah. wait. You know, it's not it's not urgent to me personally. I can feel your discomfort about this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. I mean, there's things that I could say about it that I'm not going to. So, yeah, right. Well, I mean, the reviews have been, I think, I've read a few. The reviews have, as a reading experience have been strong. Um, a couple of them have noticed, and it's, I'm, I'm mostly saying this because Rebecca and I wondered about it in our fall book preview in our buy, sell, hold. Um, both of us sold, I believe, the Testaments. One, because just the print run was, we already, the, the price was already high, so to speak, as an imaginary stock, the, what we know about the print run and like the name brand stuff of both Handmaid's Tale and Atwood. But then also our concern about where Atwood's political sensibility falls into where we sort of are, mm. especially on the left, I would say, right? Mm. And in some ways she feels behind the conversation. 
Um, and one way she's been behind the conversation has been about intersectionality. And so far, it sounds like the Testaments does nothing to ameliorate that position. I'll leave it at that. So that's something that I've been watching out for. Rebecca and I are, are going to read the Testaments in a future, uh, for a future bonus episode that we're calling The Handmaid's Tale Phenomenon. We're going to reread The Handmaid's Tale and read the Testaments and then talk about the whole, how it exists in literary culture and sort of American culture and world culture. And, you know, people dress up as handmaidens to go sit on the steps of court buildings. And there's a TV Mm -hmm. show and it's a thing now. Um, And we want to look at it from a totality. But one thing to report, at least in my initial survey of the surveys, is the thing we had hoped, or Rebecca and I had hoped, doesn't seem like it's happened around um, inclusion in the Testament so far. So to one more sponsor, and I got, we got two more and let's get out of here. Okay. You don't do audiobooks, but you care about podcasts. So this is a weird one for you. Yes. Um, Malcolm Gladwell's new book called Talking to Strangers, which speaking of potentially fraught, yeah. um, is an audiobook. And we have heard that the audiobook is outselling any other version, combined even is what I've heard of this book, which is interesting in its own right. But also, it is produced more like chapter. The chapters are produ- produced more like episodes of his podcast, Revisionist History. And if you've been online, you know what these sort of NPR-style shows, if it was an annotated, like, we're, we're cut, we're, we're drafting off the same plane here, so to speak, where there's sound effects and interviews and quotes um, from YouTube videos that are included. And, you know, there's a tense encounter, apparently, with someone that's going on here, and that gets included as that particular audio, um, they licensed a Janelle Monet song, which cannot have been cheap, by the way. I would not Here's think a question so. I still don't have the answer to is we get some of these stories about like, um, oh God, you know, Rosario Dawson narrating Artemis mm. by Andy Weir or Tom Hanks narrating, well, he's narrating something that's coming out soon. I can't remember. Or licensing a Janelle Monet song. What, are the, what the hell are the budgets for some of these books? <laughs> I do not get it. I don't understand how this works. Like, how much do you have to pay Tom Hanks for a day for audio? I don't understand. Anyway, that's a separate thing. And Gladwell has a company called Pushkin.fm. He's a co-founder of that, where they produce audiobooks and some books themselves. Um, and this seems to me maybe an inevitable collision of the podcast documentary format with the audiobook format. And is this interesting or inevitable or what? Is this interesting to you at all, I guess is what I'm asking. I think it's super interesting that the audio version of this is outselling the print and digital. That's fascinating to me. And I love that I heard that because that just – I just think that's so interesting. And – I think that I think you're right. I think it's inevitable. Uh, I, I mean, and Gladwell even says in this piece on Entertainment Weekly, like it, after doing a podcast, like I literally could not imagine doing an audiobook where I just sat in a chair and read the book into a microphone. Like I just, it doesn't make any sense. Why would we do that? And I, I think he's not wrong. I think it's interesting right. that this is one of the first ones to do this. I've also heard that Burnout by Emily Nagoski and oh, I apologize, yeah. I've forgotten her sister's name, but they wrote it together also has a very nicely sound designed audiobook experience and and I I guess I'll just say at this point that the reason I don't audiobook is just cuz I cannot focus on information that I'm only hearing I just can't <laughs> right. I can't take it in in any meaningful manner so it's it's a failing of me not of audiobooks as a as a medium but I think mm. yeah, I think this makes perfect sense and I will be very interested to see how quickly other 
publishers get on board. Like, you know, because you have the monolithic, like PRH does their own audio and Hachette does their Mm -hmm. own audio, but not that many... I mean, a lot of people sort of contracted out. So what does this mean for audiobook production and, you know, for those budgets? Because this is not cheap. This isn't cheap. We know that sound design is not cheap. And licensing, no, you no. know, videos and <laughs> Even the very and, little experience we have it is is can be very expensive yeah. just from a person hour time. You know, right. they get an editor to, to do, and we have great editors that charge us reasonably, but it still can be very expensive. Like, as example, one 20-minute episode of Annotated can take 10, 12 hours of editor time mm-hmm. to get right. And that is tw- that's like 20 to 30 minutes of audio. And this is a big book. Yeah. You know, this is a long book. Um, and now the, the caveat here is that Gladwell sells books. So there's a yeah. budget here that you're not going to have for even your sort of average big five nonfiction title. You're just mm-hmm. not going to get the budget because they know they're going to sell a whole bunch of them. And I still think Gladwell sells to business people who do spend a lot of money on books because they, we all want to get better at business and they spend on audio. Mm. That's one thing we know is these business books and self-help books do phenomenally well on audio. And not surprisingly, people coming listening to Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast probably prefer this as an audio book. So how much of this is sort of the you know, intersection of several strains that might be uniquely applicable to Gladwell at this particular moment, I don't know. But I have to say, even before I saw this story, I was listen- I'm listening to a really great audiobook right now called One Giant Leap by Charles Fishman. It's a holistic um, history of the Apollo missions that doesn't dislocate, you know, going to the moon, but what the Russians were doing and the 400,000 people that worked on the Apollo mission, but also connected to popular culture and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know the sound. The sounds of the '60s and space are so, I don't burnt into our memory that the four seconds of intro music at the very beginning of the audiobook didn't feel like enough. <laughs> just didn't, and then just reading, which that's a, that's a great it's a great innovation. But I did find myself thinking, boy, would it be great to have some of the original Walter Cronkite mm. in some of these things? Like, isn't there an experience that in, in all this talk about enhanced eBooks that failed miserably mm-hmm. over the last ten years, like no one wanted? I did wonder about the enhanced audiobook experience, and I'm going to listen to this. So I, I, my Gladwell relationship is tenuous, fine. I walk into it with, I have my um, skeptical glasses on, but I still read them. Um, I still like what he does on the whole. I've heard this one's pretty interesting um, and handled pretty well. But now that I know that I have a, a innovative podcast slash audiobook hybrid experience, to look forward to. There's that. Let's get out on this. Um, can, we talk about, my son. can we talk yeah. about my other favorite story? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I forgot. I was, I, I was blowing on past you. Let's, let's end with your favorite story, your okay. second favorite story. My second favorite story, I mean, which was really tied with my first favorite, but I have a lot of attachment to Waffle House, so that's the only reason that one <laughs> went first. So there's this great piece in PW that Every Canadian first grader is going to get a copy of a book called My Heart Fills with Happiness, which is by Mm. Monique Gray-Smith, illustrated by Julie Flett. And it's also, it's a bilingual edition that is also in Plains Cree. And both Mm. an English Cree text and a French Cree text, which is amazing. Every single first grader in Canada, like, are you kidding me? It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's, so this, um, uh, 
giveaway is called the TD Grade 1 Book Giveaway, and they are administered by the Canadian Children's Book Centre. And this is also the first time, not only is it the first time that it's a dual language book in an Indigenous language, but it's also the first time that they've partnered with a charity that will also help them distribute print and Braille editions to blind wow. and partially sighted first graders. Like, this is, this is just, I think, amazing. This is amazing. Uh- and a huge effort. Yes. Um, yes. We're looking at what five hundred and fifty thousand copies. Yeah. Of the book. So a little more than half a million books to distribute. I wonder how. I wondered the politicking. Politicking is too negative. The discussion. How to pick which book? I mean, what were the other? Like, what was the process like to get this underway? I'd love to know. Oh yeah. Um, maybe, maybe it was obvious which one. Um, which one would be there? How'd they pick? I, it's, wow. Well, over the past 19 years, the TD Grade 1 book giveaway has distributed some 9.5 million free books to children. Really incredible stuff. Up there with um, Dolly Parton's Imagination Library, they've done like 100 million books, but it's also gone on a lot longer, and I don't think it quite... It doesn't have this commitment to accessibility, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. as far as I know. I could be wrong about that. Email me, podcast at bookriot.com. You're right. That, we should get out on that one. Okay. That was the right one to end with. <laughs> Woo! Oh, I still have so many thoughts and feelings about No, that. I mean, I feel like we're going to have thoughts and feelings for a long time. Yeah. Can I say this? January is a tough time to launch that. Yeah. Am I wrong? Well... I wonder if they were going for the fall and they missed it and like, okay, let's just announce yeah, it. Yeah, because I, I, you know, holiday, what an interesting thing to have tried to launch during holiday, but also what an opportunity for failure to launch during holiday. So actually, you know... <laughs> oh, if, okay, you're going the other way. I like Yeah, that. I think if you're thinking about how to... We're talking about bookshop.org again, just right. in case that wasn't clear. If you're thinking about you want to do a launch and you want to have it go well, and if it doesn't go well, you want the stakes not to be brutally high like it right. would have been had they launched going into the holiday season. I actually think if you look at it from that angle, January is super mm. smart because people are still buying stuff. Maybe they have like Visa gift cards that they got at the you know office yeah, party. Right. Like there's still some purchasing going on. But if you if if your cart doesn't work or the back end breaks because too many people come to it or whatever, you know, if something goes wrong, you mm. don't want it to be wonderful point. Totally during the holidays. So also if you're working at an independent bookstore and someone comes in on November twenty sixth, oh, yeah. you don't want to explain to them bookshop.org. No, you right just then. can't you, you cannot you got other crap to do. Yeah, you're yeah. not doing it. You're right. wrapping six thousand gifts for the person in front of you. Like that's what mm. you're doing. So Nope. I think you're completely right. And now if I were them, I would have done it not in the holiday time. I don't know if January is the right time, but I certainly would have done it now, now that you've, now that you've laid it out like that. Okay. Email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Show notes to this and all back episodes of the Book Riot Podcast are available at bookriot.com slash listen. You can get more Jen at SFF Yeah, our podcast about science fiction and fantasy. She hosts with Sharifa. And also recommended is back. Yes. It's up. It is. It's up. Oh, you won't actually hear me that much. I'm just no, introducing but you the authors. That. But you, yeah. you hear a little bit. That's a, that's a Jen IRL joint. Yes. And get booked. Yeah. Don't forget get booked. Oh, and get booked with Amanda. And mm-hmm. that's every week. You're all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jen. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Jeff.